Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I'm going to speak about a subject about which I I really know very little, and that really requires a lot of background understanding, but it's something that's become very vocal in the United States, and Jewish groups have become heavily involved. I'm referring to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn the 1973 landmark Roe versus Wade decision that guaranteed the constitutional right to an abortion, which sparked an immediate flow of reactions from the entire spectrum of Jewish organizations. For example, a coalition of organizations called the Jewish Rally for Abortion Justice There was a rally at Union Square in Washington, outside Congress, and the National Council of Jewish Women created the Jewish Fund for Abortion Access in partnership with the National Abortion Federation. But that's just the beginning of plans from Jewish groups of various denominations and various political alliances to fight the court decision. Now, for example, their uh, Rabbis for Repro campaign is being sponsored by the uh, National Council of Jewish Women to educate communities around the country that reproductive freedom is a Jewish value, an essential front in this fight. By the way, That's a very broad statement. Reproductive freedom is a Jewish value. I'm not quite sure what it means, but in a moment I'll tell the listeners what the Orthodox groups say. There's also an organization called Tenu'ah that said that reproductive freedom is a Jewish value, and according to Jewish law, abortion is not only permitted in at least some circumstances, but even required if the life of the pregnant person is at risk. In a statement, the Women's Rabbinical Network, a constituent of the Reform Movement Central Conference of American Rabbis, pledged continued support for women seeking an abortion and those providing their service. Now, the court decision comes four months before the midterm elections, as President Joe Biden's approval ratings have plummeted to 39%, and the polls indicate a growing possibility of a Republican wave because of high inflation, high gas prices, and fears of recession. So Democrats hope that the court ruling could change the Republicans' momentum and that voters could see reproductive rights as a priority in this coming election. The Jewish Democratic Council of America said the overturning of Roe versus Wade was an affront to its Jewish and Democratic values. 
Now, that's I've mentioned already four or five organizations. Uh, now, what about the Orthodox Union? The Orthodox Union uh, made a statement several months ago when a draft version of the decision was leaked. And it's saying the Umbrella Group could neither mourn or celebrate the reversal of the 1973 ruling. The Orthodox Union's executive vice president said in an interview that states excluding mental health from the abortion calculation would be a cause for concern. He went on to say, absolutely, there will be a mental health issue that impact the life of the mother. Abortion should be allowed in the event we would be concerned about that. But he added that the court's decision was an opportunity to consider the value of life in a number of spheres. There may also be an opportunity here to shift the discussion of life to a more responsible space. A number of Orthodox groups and leading figures argue that liberal Jewish groups overstate the protections Jewish law offers to pregnant women. These groups argue that state laws with exemptions considering the life of the mother are adequate and that abortion under Roe versus Wade was, as it's constituted, devalues life. Agudath Izzel of America, a very orthodox organization, issued a statement welcoming what it called this historic development. We pray that the ruling will inspire all Americans to appreciate the moral magnitude of the abortion issue and to embrace a culture that celebrates life. Uh, another member of the Aguda, the Orthodox organization, said, said the group will continue working on the abortion issue on the legislative, legal, and community fronts. Thus, a greater focus will be directed toward Congress and state legislatures. Agudath Israel's in Washington around the country will be active in monitoring existing and proposed federal and state legislation. We will review laws for their efficacy in providing the protection fetal life deserves while working to ensure that in extraordinary circumstances where religious faith teaches that a terminating pregnancy is indicated, a woman's right to abortion be safeguarded. When and where necessary, as we have done in the past, we will also make our views known in federal and state courts where fetal protections and religious rights are being trampled upon or not being properly provided for. Perhaps more importantly, we'll also continue to clarify to the Jewish community and to others what Jewish law and tradition say regarding the complex issue of abortion. Tragically, many who purport to speak in the name of Judaism have failed to acknowledge the Torah's emphasis on the sanctity of fetal life, leading them to insist upon abortion on demand an illegitimate basis for terminating presidency, uh, pregnancy. Also, a number of groups, uh, the Jewish Federation and the Hillel Foundation, all reacted, all had something to say. Also, the American Jewish community. And so the point I wanted to make 
is, to the best of my knowledge, by the way, what the uh, this new decision was to take it out of the hands of the federal government and put it in the hands of the uh, states. To the best of my knowledge, most people who are up and running and screaming have not read the decision, which I understand covers about a thousand pages. Uh, at any rate, the Jewish organization feel they have to say something about this new um, law or, or the change in the law where Roe versus Wade is now not the, the law of the land, and Jewish organizations feel they have to say something about it. I must uh, tell the uh, listeners quite honestly, I'm not sure what the law here in Israel is. I, want, I should have checked on it but it's a little difficult to find out information about it. The bottom line is, uh, the reason I brought this all up is this is a major issue in the United States now, and most of the Jewish organizations feel they have to say something about it. The Orthodox Union put out the most uh, quiet report, if you will, saying they will wait and see. So since it is a major issue, it even may be a major issue in the upcoming election in the United States. I felt that I should tell the listeners what the Jewish organizations are saying about it. Some writers, by the way, feel that uh, this court ruling uh, may change Jewish life in America. For example, um, the Holocaust, which made Americans appreciate Jewish suffering, and Israel's establishment, which made them admire Jewish resilience, sparked a golden era in which American Jewry thrived the way no other Jewish community did in more than 2,000 years of the diaspora. The, um, the first, but perhaps least significant, Jewish distinction in the abortion debate is theological. Judaism even in its most rigid version, doesn't share classical Christianity's definition of life's beginning. Unlike the Catholic view, as, as phrased by uh, Thomas Aquinas, that a fetus assumes a soul once it moves, and unlike the Protestant view that the embryo is already a human being and it's almost a monstrous crime to rob it of life, Jewish law rules that if an embryo risks its mother's life, it is to be killed because the mother's life takes precedence. Jewish law generally sees the embryo's legal status as an evolution that follows its biological development. That's why the Talmud says that until 40 days from conception, the fetus is merely water. It says that in the Talmud, in Tractate Yevomot, page 69. And that is why rabbinical law ruled that murder only applies to the born. So Judaism is not as militant on abortion as Christianity. So that is the Jewish view. And now, the truth of the matter is that's the Orthodox view, but Orthodoxy, which is hardly one-fifth of American Jewry, uh, are, are keeping a sense they're keeping their uh, their cards close to their vest. Uh, that's why when the Jewish organizations were interviewed, they said they're going to wait and see. Uh, on the face of this, this is but one issue, and it makes no 
chasm uh, between the Jews and their neighbors. And one can argue that the court made no statement on abortions per se, but merely said that the Constitution doesn't sanction them, and it has to go back to the states. So a lot of people are blowing this uh, out of size. So uh, the point I wanted to make was that since it's a matter which is really splitting the American community, then uh, I really think the Jews should take a... Um, a less prominent position, because uh, in terms of their sense of security, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the deeper American society splits, the more a critical mass of Americans will perhaps think that the Jews are on the other side. So at the beginning of the program, I mentioned how many Jewish organizations came out on this issue, and it would seem to me that it might be safer politically for the Jews just to keep the cards close to their chest. This is, this is an issue, the abortion issue, is one that really is affecting the entire American community, and I don't think the Jews should raise their heads and be, be seen too much. That, that's my personal feeling about uh, when, when and uh, whenever Jews should be openly take very controversial positions. They just have to just be more politically wise and keep a low profile on very major issues that stir up the general public. Now, after having spent more than half the time of this section of the program on one subject, I want to touch upon some other subjects which I think are under the headlines, but they're important. For example, a military officer from the United Arab Emirates will attend Israel's National Defense College, and this marks the first time that an officer, officer from an Arab state will attend this very prestigious institution. The officer, who is a fighter pilot with the rank of colonel, will study at Israel's military college this year. And the curriculum, which runs for around 10 months, includes a graduate degree in political science from the University of Haifa, and it prepares senior uh, military staff, as well as defense and government officials for senior command positions, and brings in several students from overseas every year. According to the New Arab News website, the officer who was accepted to study here in Israel previously studied at the UAE's Defense College, which follows an American curriculum. He approved the he received the approval to study in Israel from the president, the Emirati president. It's believed that the officer's time at the Defense College is not only of symbolic importance but a move that will also increase regional cooperation. You have to remember that Israel and the UAE normalized relations back in 2020 as part of the Abraham Accords and have since exchanged ambassadors and signed dozens of bilateral agreements and several senior military officials have visited Israel. It turns out that both Israel and the UAE have worked together covertly for many years 
against Iran and according to foreign reports have improved their intelligence sharing and military relations behind closed doors in order to be prepared for Iranian threats. So there's been a normalization agreement between the countries and now they are exchanging students at a very high level, which is good news and it really helps to cement the relationship. The next item, which I think is important to a lot of people, is that Unilever, the parent company of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, has found a legal maneuver to overcome the thorny legal situation that the ice cream company's board put them a year ago with an announcement they would end the sale of their ice cream in the West Bank. Unilever will sell the Israel rights to the owner of American quality products so that the ice cream can be distributed in the West Bank under the Benny Jerry's name in Hebrew and Arabic. That's very nice. Even Lapid, the Prime Minister, tweeted that this move is worth celebrating. The anti-Semites won't defeat us, not even on ice cream. So we can all sleep well tonight knowing that after a year of unimaginable suffering, we, living in the West Bank, and that my family is there, and my friends are there, they will once again be able to find Chunky Monkey in their local grocery store. So it's a victory for somebody. I'm not quite sure for who. And another interesting subject is the following. An Israeli think tank has recommended that the Israeli government should promote Jewish holidays not as a religious event, but rather as a Jewish culture. The leadership of the Jewish People Policy Institute presented an executive summary uh, during the government's weekly cabinet meeting. The summary is called 2022 Annual Assessment of the Situation and Dynamics of the Jewish People, which is quite a mouthful. The Institute stated that the Israeli government should promote the unifying presence of Jewish holidays in Israel's public and private spheres. In the explanation, they specified that those who plan holiday activities should use the language of Jewish culture rather than of Jewish religion. This is especially the case when the activities are intended for a secular and traditional non-religious public with reservations, sometimes significant ones, about anything couched in religious language. They recommend that the government establish dialogue with Jews who support the Democratic Party to secure its support in advancing Israel's positions on the nuclear Iran issue. They recommended that diaspora communities should secure assistance from Israel in establishing projects for Jewish education. They also advised that philanthropy in Israel should be encouraged that there be a proper response to the increasing number of Israelis not recognized as Jews, and the continued rapid growth of the ultra-Orthodox community requires intra- and extra-sectorial attention. That's a lot, a mouthful of words. I'm tell you the truth, I'm not quite sure what it all means. I always consider the bottom line as Jewish education. 
not Jewish observance. But that's a story unto itself. a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom! I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home every Thursday, only on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. This is Jay Shapiro again, and again, thanks for listening. This week was July 4th. American Independence Day, and I read a lot of articles about it this week, and I read one by Moshe Tarigan, who is a rabbi at Yeshiva Har Etzion, which is a Hezder pre-military yeshiva, and I was very impressed with what he wrote And I want to share some of his thoughts, uh, which are really mine also, with the listeners. The the Declaration of Independence was written in 1776, and it essentially launched a great project of modern democracy, the United States. For the, the great project of modern democracy, for the first time, the, the government preserved basic human rights, including the freedom of worship, which was very important and very unusual at that time. No longer banned, Judaism flourished in the United States, even though at the beginning there were very few Jews living there, but they already had some congregations in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and Philadelphia, and Savannah, Georgia. So the culture which democracy has construed is often at odds with deeply held religious values. Democracy and religion have a relationship because democracy is wonderful. It gives, but it also takes. Religious identity is built upon the values of commandment, commitment, mission, and above all, mutual responsibility that we Jews have for each other. At Sinai, we were charged with a comprehensive system of divine commands, which in a sense limit freedom of choice, but infuse our lives with higher meaning. Additionally, we model a life of meaning to be to the broader world, We are considered a kingdom of priests, 
Our mission is to showcase a godly life of devotion for all humanity, and we bear mutual responsibility to each other. This uh, doctrine asserts that every Jew is morally and legally responsible for every other Jew. Unless I assist others in their religious obligations, I haven't completely satisfied my own obligations. We Mutual responsibility is really important. And it is the foundation, the cornerstone of duty, which is the foundation of religious life. There was a moral code written in the 18th century known as Mesilat Yeshorim, which means Path of the Just. It was written by Moshe Chaim Lutzato. I have a copy in my bookcase. And he framed a haunting demand which defines Jewish identity. Every Jew must ask themselves, what are my duties in this world? God created us as creatures of duty, and our call to duty provides us meaning and even nobility and a certain loftiness of character. Sadly, in many modern democracies, people see themselves as creatures of rights rather than creatures of duty. So we have to ask ourselves, how did we get here, and what are the dangers for religion? Without law and without government, weaker members of society would be exploited by the stronger ones. Society at large would be vulnerable to foreign aggression. To establish strong government, to preserve order and provide safety, individuals must voluntarily waive some of their freedoms. The willful relinquishing of personal freedom on behalf of common welfare is known as a social contract. We enter a mutual agreement with society in which we deliver our rights in exchange for effective government. That's a very important point. Though although personal freedoms must be surrendered to this government, there are certain things that can never be relinquished. These sacred freedoms are inalienable. They can't be taken away from a person, but they must remain forever in the hands of an individual. A person's life, liberty, and pursuit of personal happiness are so vital to human experience that they cannot be suspended under any condition or in any context of any social contract. In short, Democracy balances between which freedoms can be relinquished to government and which can never be surrendered. At its heart, democracy was never about preserving rights. Human rights were part of an internal calculus calibrating the boundaries of the social contract and which rights can and cannot be suspended. 
Democracy was never primarily about rights, but about something larger than the individual, and that is the common good. That's why people are drafted into the army to serve the country in times of war. They give up individual freedom for the common good. But something happened. Somehow modern democracies morphed into cultures obsessed with the pursuit of human rights. In the past, democracies stirred us to devotion to some larger common agenda. I remember that as a child during the Second World War, and I remember it when I came to Israel. Sadly, today, they're often centered upon penny, petty, rivaling demands for rights and resources. Now, how has this happened? Ideally, democracies work best when a citizen share a unifying narrative. When people are unified by a larger common project, they more naturally sense mutual responsible to each other. For example, immediately after the American Revolution, the young country viewed itself as a global experiment in democracy. Likewise, in the 20th century, the United States views itself as the defender of human liberty against Nazism and communism. Unified by a common narrative, lives were defined by mission and collective responsibility. In the United States for some time, and now in Israel, we are starting to see loss of that common narrative. Rapid urbanization relocated people from socially connected villages into cold and impersonal cities, making common narratives even more elusive. In particular, here in Israel, in the center of the country, there are numerous high-rise apartment buildings in which there is very little chance that the neighbors know each other, unless they happen to meet in the elevator. Now, fortunately, life in Israel does provide a common narrative and citizens here are patriotic, probably more than in most com- countries, certainly more than in the United States. They fulfill their duties and obligations for the common good. At least in this respect, Israeli democracy is healthier than in the, in the United States and probably in Western Europe also. They have been emptied of a common story. I watch the news from the United States, and I see that this is happening more rapidly now. Additionally, as society expanded, governments became bloated, and providers of a wide network of services and benefits that used to be done and given by communities. Once a government becomes a supplier of benefits, people become consumers rather than partners. That's an important point. Politics has begun to resemble the market. No duties, only opportunities. 
The culture, this cultural shift poses many dangers, not only to modern democracy, but also to religious identity. We become excessively fixated upon our rights and less upon our duties. We are preoccupied with what we should be receiving and not occupied to what we should be contributing. We have become consumers and not producers. Religion and moral behavior challenge us to act selflessly toward God and altruistically toward others. A life based on illegal rights is a life that is self-centered and nothing more than that. Without a feeling of duty and selflessness, religion becomes hollow. Religion may still be practiced, but religious identity becomes less. There's a difference between religious identity and religious practice. The, uh, we, our religious identity should be based upon human duties and less upon modern democracy's obsession with rights. A second danger in our culture of rights is the appeal of collective and personal victimhood. In the modern competition for rights and benefits, people try to present themselves as victims and therefore entitled. Any society or group that in the past has been victimized possesses a superior virtue in its own eyes and deserves a larger piece of the pie. That is happening big time in the United States. I don't want to go into the details. Anybody who's aware of the daily news from the United from the United States knows that this is true. There are the countries divided between those who claim that things are owed to them and those that don't. What has happened is, particularly in the United States, and the first signs here, is victimhood has become politicized, and it demands social recognition of grievance and demand for compensation for collective past suffering. Victimhood becomes a power. The weaponizing of victimhood is ultimately responsible for the corrosive phenomenon of identity politics and the muddying swirl of what's now called intersectionality, a word that only came into a but only the word was only coined about 35 years ago, and the word intersectionality has become very popular within the last five years. In other words, all the groups that, that complain that they uh, that they are owed things now combine with each other, and so. As far as religion, it's also threatened by the culture of victimhood, which breeds hatred and resentment rather than generosity and compassion. Victimhood portrays the world as a world of conflict, sharply divided between oppressors and victims. It encourages antagonism and confrontationalism rather than harmony and cooperation. 
It can divide internal communities just as it divides the body politic. Victimhood becomes a mindset that invades every communal setting and even our relationships. Nothing is more destructive, for example, to a marriage than victimhood. If one of the parties feels that they are a victim, as I watch the news from the United States, more and more, the United States, which is the fortress of democracy and the protector of the Western world, is becoming divided by victimhood. If you think about it for a moment, at some point in everyone's lives, everyone is a victim of something, either through human misconduct or conduct, forces beyond our control, things that happen in the family. It is seductively easy to collapse into a state of lack of accountability and thereby release ourselves from responsibility. We like to convince ourselves we aren't culpable because we've been the victims of something. That's happening big time in the United States, and it's starting to show the first signs here in Israel. I don't want to go into the details, but there are indeed sections of the social uh, fabric here in Israel that were indeed victims uh, years ago. Uh, the Yemenites, for example, but their leadership has been such that they haven't turned victimhood into a form of religion. Any releasing of responsibility is contagious and will infect our general religious discipline. Once we begin to say we're not responsible, there's a good possibility that our religious discipline will come apart. We, we fall down a slope of self-exoneration. We blame everybody else for our problems. There's too much victimhood in our world, and it's suffocating religious aspiration. Every victim faces a choice to be fall into victimhood or to choose redeemed lives of responsibility. What's happened in the United States is not healthy at all. There are people who are dividing the country into victims and oppressors. And as I said, the United States is the fortress of Western democracy. And if it comes apart because of victimhood, then the whole world is in trouble. We here in Israel, where there indeed was a People who were victims, we can actually point to it at the beginning of the state. People who came from other countries, particularly from the uh, Sephardi countries, were pushed around by the Ashkenazic leadership. This is a fact that we cannot deny, and we have done what we can over the years to essentially make up for these original sins. And in that sense, Israel is a country that is different than other countries because we have recognized our problems and are trying to solve them. And we've been pretty successful. The bottom line of what I was speaking about is that because the United States is is the fortress of Western democracy, the fact that it is now dividing itself and weakening itself means that the 
the forces of anti-democracy in the world, like Russia, like China, and in particular Iran, which has declared itself the enemy of Israel and would like to destroy Israel, these are, these are the things that are happening around them. And it looks like, uh, as far as we can tell from the present polit the world politics, that the uh, Iranians are going to push toward getting a nuclear weapon, which they promised to use against Israel. The United States probably will do nothing about that. The United States is caught up in its own problems, including the problem of the country being divided by so-called victims and oppressors. And in the final analysis, the bottom line of all this is that Israel, which is still a healthy society and has done much to correct the mistakes that were made over the years, we will have to defend ourselves against a nuclear Iran. Thanks for listening. Listening to Israel News Talk Radio. This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany's but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel, Phantom Nation, every Monday. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Khalib Abu Tuama is an award-winning journalist. He's an Arab, and he spends a lot of time in the Arab community, and he reports from there and writes a lot of detailed reports just about every week. So it's very important to read what he writes because he's really someone who knows. And he writes that the vast majority of Palestinians make it clear they do not believe in a two-state solution and would rather see Hamas, the Iranian-backed terror group whose charter calls for the elimination of Israel, he would rather see Hamas replaced the Palestinian Authority, which is headed now by Mahmoud Abbas. According to the results of a poll, opposition to the concept of the two-state solution stands at almost 70%. Another 75% of respondents express opposition to the idea of a one-state solution, where Israelis and Palestinians will live together and enjoy equal rights. Now, this poll was conducted, conducted by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, and it was done on, the report was published on June 28th, just a week ago. 
most Palestinians said in the poll that Hamas is the most deserving to represent and lead the Palestinian people. Hamas's popularity among the Palestinians means that the Palestinian state that the Biden administration is seeking to establish next to Israel would soon be ruled by an Islamic group whose covenant states that Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as Islam ab obliterated others before it. That's what their charter says, and that is something that apparently the overwhelming majority of Palestinians believe. Uh, Hamas leaders had never been anything but clear and also consistent about their intention to eliminate Israel and to kill Jews. Hamas and its supporters do not believe in Biden's two-state solution or any peace process with Israel. The only solution they want is one that would see Israel and the Jews vanish from this world. And sadly, a majority of the Palestinians share the ideology of Hamas and want to see even more Jews killed. So the Biden administration, which keeps talking about a two-state solution, needs to understand that under the current circumstances, advancing the idea of a two-state solution is tantamount to advocating bloodshed and violence in the Middle East. The Biden administration also needs to understand that Abbas, the Palestinian leader, they are trying to engage with him and rely on him to make peace Abbas utterly lacks the backing of majority of the Palestinian people for any peace plan with Israel. These are the facts on the ground, and it's something you just don't see anywhere or hear about. While the Biden administration continues to talk about its commitment to a two-state solution, a majority of the Palestinians are saying they support the Islamic Hamas terror group and want to see more terrorist attacks against Jews. The Biden administration is living under the illusion that the two-state solution would see the establishment of an independent and sovereign Palestinian state alongside Israel. And they think, the Biden administration thinks, that's the only way to achieve peace, security, and stability in the Middle East. However, the vast majority of the Palestinians make it abundantly clear that they do not believe in a two-state solution and would rather see Hamas, the Iranian-backed terror group whose charter calls for the elimination of Israel, they would rather see Hamas replace the Palestinian Authority headed by Mahmoud Abbas. It's interesting, back on June 30th, just recently, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken spoke with Abbas to discuss President Joe Biden's upcoming trip to the Middle East. He's supposed to come here in a couple of weeks. Uh, Secretary Blinken, according to the report, stressed the U.S. commitment to improving the quality of life of the Palestinian people in tangible ways 
and the U.S. administration's support for a negotiated two-state solution. On the eve of Biden's visit to Israel, he's going to visit Israel, he's going to visit what's called the West Bank, and he's going to visit Saudi Arabia. On the eve of his visit, which is coming up shortly, a public opinion poll conducted, conducted by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research indicated a significant drop in support among the Palestinians for a two-state solution and instead a rise in support for return to the armed uprising and terrorist attacks against Israel. The poll found that 55% of the Palestinians support a return to armed confrontation and also return to an intifada, and that's an increase of, from those who supported a return to violence three months ago. And in addition, almost 60% say supported terrorist attacks carried out inside Israel by Palestinians during the past few months. The vast majority of Palestinians are opposed to an unconditional resumption of the peace negotiations. Another 65% are opposed to dialogue with the Biden administration. The poll also found that a majority of the Palestinians do not have confidence in Abbas, with whom the Biden administration is dealing. If new presidential elections were held today, Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh would receive 55% of the vote, while Abbas would get only 33%. 73% of the Palestinians expressed dissatisfaction with the performance of Abbas. Another 77% said they want him to resign. And most Palestinians said that Hamas is the most deserving to represent and lead the Palestinian people. These, this is the kind of information which is found when you actually go to this Palestinian population and speak with them. So what does this mean? It means simply that the Palestinian state, the Biden administration, is seeking to establish next to Israel, would soon be ruled by an Islamic group whose um, states that Israel will exist and continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as Islam obliterated others before it. So, as a majority of the Palestinians want to replace Abbas with Hamas, it means that the proposed Palestinian state will be committed to the covenant of this terror group, which does not believe in Israel's right to exist. And it's interesting, the Biden administration should take a look at what the covenant of Hamas terror group says. Article 2 of its covenant states, and it is very clear, the Islamic resistance movement believes that the land of Palestine is an Islamic war consecrated for future Muslim generations until Judgment Day. It or any part of it should not be squandered 
it or any part of it should not be given up, neither a single Arab country, nor all the Arab countries, neither any king or president, and all the kings and presidents, neither any organization, nor all of them, be they Palestinian or Arab, possess the right not to give up not to give up Palestine. There's a, uh, according to the Prophet Muhammad, which is quoted in the Hamas charter, says, the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews, when the Jews will be hide, hide behind stones and trees. The stones and trees will say, O Muslims, O Abdullah, there's a Jew behind me, come and kill him. So, the Palestinian state that the Biden administration is pushing for will undoubtedly be used by Hamas and its patrons in Iran as a launching pad to obliterate Israel. Hamas leaders had never been anything but clear and consistent about their intention to eliminate Israel and kill Jews. That's the way it is. The, uh, the, uh, the, there are several conferences were held with the Hamas leaders, and they came up with the statement that they, they condemn any effort by any Arab country to normalize with the Zionist enemy and open their countries to Israel's army, economy, settlers, and politicians. And it said all the countries that are now signing agreements with Israel are doing wrong and they are anti-Islam. So the, the they had a conference of these groups and they said that they affirm the right of the Palestinian people to their historical land from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. And so... The uh, it's obvious that Hamas and its supporters do not believe in Biden's two-state solution or any peace process with Israel. The only solution they want is one that would see Israel and the Jews vanish in this world. Sadly, the majority of Palestinians, as evidenced by the latest poll, share the ideology of Hamas and want to see even more Jews killed. So the Biden administration needs to understand that under the current circumstances, advancing the idea of a two-state solution is tantamount to advocating bloodshed and violence in the Middle East. And the Biden administration needs to understand the, that Abbas, the Palestinian leader, that's the one they're endeavoring to engage and relying on to make peace, utterly lacks the backing of a majority of the Palestinian people for any peace plan with Israel. These are the facts on the ground. And what I've done in the last few minutes is quote from a report by Khaled Abu Tu'ama, who who goes into the Palestinian areas, speaks with the Palestinians, and reports. How many people read these reports? That's really an interesting question. But he speaks with the average man in the street, and the average man in the street does not want to see Israel exist, 
does not believe in a two-state solution, so the Biden pushing a two-state solution is simply the wrong thing for the American administration to be doing. So perhaps it would be interesting or it would be educational for a lot of the American diplomats to read what the Arabs themselves are saying, and they'll find out that the two-state solution is simply not on their agenda. And these are the facts on the ground. So I share this with the listeners of a report which I read this week, and I think it's important. this is important information to know. Now a quick change of topic to another one which doesn't get big headlines. I want to share the information with the listeners. A a report came out the other day that the um, it's based on some uh, information provided by the UN that said that the number of Palestinians killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank was 46% higher in 2022 than it was in the previous year. In 2022, it was only half over. The uh, the number of Palestinians killed by Israeli security forces in the West Bank and East Jerusalem increased by 46% in the first half of 2022 when compared with the same period last year. So some of the details, uh, I'll just uh, share them with the listeners. From January, from January to June, 60 Palestinians were killed compared to 41 in the same six months here before. According to the UN, there were 78 Palestinian fatalities at the hands of Israel security forces for all of 2021 and 24 fatalities in 2020. So the this UN office, which puts out the reports, is connected to the UN High Commission for Human Rights and did not distinguish in its report between Palestinians killed in the midst of terror activity, those killed in clashes with the Israeli army, or those who were bystanders to violence. Did it, the UN accuse Israel security forces, uh, such as the army, the border police, the Israeli police, of using disproportionate response contrary to international law? Uh, the UN said that many of the cases monitored by the UN Human Rights Office indicated that Israeli forces used lethal force in a manner that appears totally inconsistent with international human rights. In a number of incidents, it appears that lethal force was used by Israeli forces as a first rather than as a a last resort to confront an alleged threat. So the UN Rights Office made reference to the complex security situation in which Palestinian terrorists in the West Bank killed 18 people and a series of four attacks in Israel between March and May. Not since the second intifada that began over two decades ago has there been such a high number of terror victims in such a short period of time. The uh, so this is what the UN report said. The uh, it called for a transparent investigation into the actions of Israeli security forces in connection with the shooting deaths of Palestinians. And according to the UN, lack of accountability 
for these violations remains pervasive, and this is impunity on the on by Israel, which allows further violence to occur. Anyone found responsible should be held to account with penal and disciplinary sanctions commensurate with the gravity of the violations. So this is what the UN said about Israel defending itself. So I, I, I truly believe that, that this should be taken with a grain of salt. Of salt. I just wanted to share this with the listeners to see what the, the first of all, the, the the numbers are of interest. If you would ask somebody off the top of their head how many Palestinians were killed this year or last year by Israeli security forces, most people simply would not know. But these were the numbers, and uh, the UN, uh, perhaps the UN might even exaggerate to these numbers for all I know, but the, the UN... Uh, the, the UN keeps a close eye on Israel. Uh, the UN is not a friend of Israel. So, as I said, their reports must be taken with a grain of salt. But the truth of the matter is that, thank heaven, our security forces protect us so we can go about our day-to-day activities, even in a mixed city like Jerusalem, without fear of being attacked. I live in Jerusalem, and these are the facts on the ground. Thank heaven for the Israeli security forces. David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. In this portion of the program, I want to touch on a number of items that I call under the radar. These are news items that are not mentioned in television and radio. And and when they appear in the written media, they're in the back pages. But I think they're important for people to know about because they say something about Jewish life in Israel and around the world. The items are not related. They touch upon different subjects. But I think they're important for the listeners to hear about. The first item has to do with the future of Haredi Aliyah, the future of those Jews who are interested in Aliyah, who come from what's known as the Haredi community, sometimes known as the ultra-Orthodox. I'm not quite sure what definition is the best. Visiting Tel Aviv or Ramat uh, Beit Shemesh or Gush Etzion or Jerusalem 
one can get the impression that Israel is largely an English-speaking country, as there are so many English-speaking residents of all types in these areas. This is true for secular students. They're turned on by Israel, to Israel by free introductory birthright tours and various programs such as Chabad. And it's also true for the modern Orthodox crowd, for whom Aliyah has always been important. And it is increasingly true for English-speaking Haredim as well, especially in Ramat Bet Shemesh and Jerusalem. How large is the community of Haredim, English-speaking Haredim? Let's begin even earlier. How many Anglos, which is the common shorthand for English speakers, how many Anglos of all types are there in Israel? Based on official numbers, there have been roughly there have roughly been 140,000 Americans, 40,000 British, 20,000 Canadians, 20,000 South Africans, 5,000 Australians, 100 Irish, and I'm sorry, 1,000 Irish, and 1,000 New Zealanders, immigrants from 1948 to 2020. That is a total of 227,000 English-speaking immigrants throughout Israel's history. Some of them, of course, are no longer alive. Others are no longer in Israel. However, add in a few thousand people since 2020, and we are likely talking about just over 200,000 English-speaking immigrants now in Israel. And every year, approximately 4,000 more arrive. So that these are English speakers. So we have the next question is, how many of these immigrants are ultra-Orthodox, Haredim? Now that's hard to know for many reasons. Historically, this kind of thing was never measured. Also, the word Haredim is rarely used by the ultra-Orthodox populations in the diaspora and even has different connotations in different places. To ask yourself, for example, even when the word is used, the definition is unclear. There's much more of a range than one might realize. For example, is a family Haredi if both parents are working professionals, if the father wears colored shirts, or if the kids go into the army? Furthermore, not all Haredi immigrants immigrate, at least officially. Some have theological objections. Others come to learn Torah for years and end up staying and just never bother to apply for citizenship. According to an organization called Nefesh Benefesh, which is essentially responsible for Aliyah from English-speaking countries, Roughly 70% of Western immigrants currently self-identify as religious, which includes both those from the national religious community and Haredim, 
No one really knows how many are Haredim, but any visitor to Jerusalem or Beit Shemesh will quickly realize that the numbers are substantial, especially when one includes the children of English-speaking immigrants, perhaps a community of 200,000 more or less. No one really knows. The next item is very short, but I think it's of interest. Uh, there's a big gap between the salaries of teachers in U.S. Jewish day schools. According to uh, a, a nonprofit uh, run by the Diaspora Affairs Ministry, they did the research and they find that uh, the teachers in New York and West Coast Jewish schools earn those who teach in Jewish day schools in the New York area uh, earn um, a lot more than those, for example, in Florida. But in Florida, even, they earn a lot more than the Jews earn teaching in the Midwest. Uh, and uh, the uh, public school teachers in the United States make an average of about $65,000 a year. And uh, in the Jewish schools on the East Coast, between sixty and ninety thousand, in Florida between forty and seventy-five thousand, and in Midwest between thirty-two thousand and fifty thousand, which is less than the public school teachers make. So I think something has to be done about that in order to entice more teachers to come into the uh, a, uh, Jewish school system, particularly the Midwest where Jewish education and Jewish identity needs support and reinforcement. So I would expect the experts in Jewish education to start doing something about that to make sure that the Jewish schools in the Midwest can attract teachers. The next item on a totally different subject has to do with our relationship with the Palestinians. It's generally accepted that Palestinians are not ready or interested or even capable of statehood alongside Israel. That, I think, is pretty obvious. The core of the Palestinian identity is what they call the Nakba, their, their failure. Aided by Arab countries and others, they failed to destroy the newly established state of Israel back in 1948, and they took big losses in the Six-Day War in 1967. And now they are essentially engaged in a war of attrition. They are not looking for peaceful coexistence. That is why the Palestinians and their leadership will not recognize Israel's right to exist. They are engaged instead in incitement and terrorism, active terrorism, and continue a tradition of corruption and victimization, all the while being steeped in internal, religious, tribal, and sectarian conflicts among themselves. Nakba, their loss to Israel, 
is the basic fact of their own self-definition. It's their raison d'etre, and that is why they call for a global intifada to destroy Israel. The problem with the two-state solution is first, it's not realistic. Second, it ignores claims that all the land from the river to the sea belongs to the Palestinians, and it supports accusation that Israel is illegally occupying Palestinian territory, and it makes Israel future dependent on establishing a terrorist-run state which openly declares its intention to wipe out the only Jewish state. Instead of a peace process, the two-state solution mantra prevents any kind of peace process. With our experience with the Second Intifada and the withdrawal from Gush Katif and the daily incitement and support for terrorism by the Palestinian Authority and Hamas being poised to take over Judea and Samaria from the Palestinian Authority, why would anyone who cares about Israel advocate trusting or assisting them? Palestinians refuse to acknowledge basic facts of history, including that Jews had a long and highly developed civilization in the land of Israel. Arab and Palestinian media continue to portray Jews as evil, satanic, subhuman, foreign intruders in their Palestine. Their schools, which are supported by the European Union and the United Nations, teach Jew hatred and a distorted form of history that omits Jewish history, omits the Holocaust, omits Jewish contributions to civilization, and the right of Jews to their own homeland. Given this reality, a second Arab-Palestinian state in Palestine, according to this two-state solution, supported by terrorist countries like Iran, is not only unrealistic, but it poses a direct threat not only to Israel's existence, but actually a direct threat to the entire area. The so-called two-state solution not only places the burden of resolving the conflict on Israel, but such a state cannot accommodate all of those who may wish to come into it. Moreover, it would disintegrate in wars between the PLO and Hamas and other terrorist groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic Jihadists. A two-state solution and the bottom line is a recipe for failure. The alternative to the two-state solution could be a regional approach to ending the conflict that's focused on cooperation that is constructive rather than destructive and that is realistic and viable instead of promoting Palestinianism and ending Israel's existence in genocide. There are those who are suggesting that they can become a Middle East Treaty Organization, let's call it METO, M-E-T-O, 
which be similar to NATO. The multi-state solution is based on the reality that Jordan already is a Palestinian state, both demographically and historically, and it could Jordan could become a dynamic, prosperous country and the homeland for those who consider themselves to be Palestinians. Most of the population of Jordan today is indeed Palestinian. There is no need for another Palestinian state, especially one that's dedicated to destroying Israel. So, it has been suggested by some expert that the multi-state solution is a humanitarian plan that will give people opportunities and choices, especially Palestinians. Those who are now living in the under UN-supported towns and villages, they're being fed uh, in these camps by the United Nations, uh, both in Lebanon and in Syria. They've been there for several generations, and they may prefer to remain where they are. Uh, and those who want to move to another country should be allowed to do so. Truth of the matter is, as, as we can see, the United Nations serves no constructive purpose. And the truth of the matter is, the activities in the, in the, uh, of the United Nations in the Middle East should be defunded. So a multiple state solution, including the countries with which Israel has already made peace in this area, encourages development and our cooperation that will help people become productive. It combines economic, technological, and social resources of all the countries in the region for mutual benefit. For example, water pipelines can be built from Turkey to those sparsely populated areas or even uninhabited areas of Syria and Jordan. This will not only assist their economic development, but will promote peace. The Middle East can develop a common market, free trade area, things of that nature. This seems to be the direction of the Abraham Accords, which already exist, and it could be extended to all kinds of countries in the region. So a multi-state solution provides a vision for accomplishments rather than clinging to unrealistic hopes and fantasies. A multi-state solution promotes peace and prosperity, and there are people already thinking about it. The, it reflects a, 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 the fact that all the countries in the area will, will benefit from it. And it, the truth of the matter is, it may be the only coherent, viable, and sustainable path to peaceful coexistence in the Middle East. No one would have believed five years ago that Israel would sign agreements with a number of Muslim Arab nations. They signed these agreements for their own reasons, and already there is a tremendous amount of mutual uh, uh, activity between Israel and a number of these nations, which, because Israel can provide technologically 
uh, a lot that these nations need. And they saw this, so they untied themselves from the Palestinian issue. Now, if the Palestinians could be brought into the picture, if they had the proper leadership, there's a good possibility there indeed can be a Middle East Treaty Organization. Uh, no one could have imagined five years ago that Israel would have agreements with other Muslim nations in the area. And so if those people who are thinking about the future should start thinking out of the box and perhaps make an organization that would include the Palestinians. To my mind, the only thing holding it up so far is the leadership of the Palestinians and the educational system of the Palestinians. If they can be changed, the whole Middle East can be changed. And finally, when I came to Israel, there were very few people who had private cars. Now, there are so many cars in Israel that the Minister of Transport has come up with a new um, map, a new plan that uh, int introduced on Route 1, the, one, the road that goes from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, they're introduced at the Shar Haggai Interchange at a bus lane that'll link up with existing fast lane and bus lane from Ben Gurion Airport and at fast lanes on the Ayalon Highway. So it turns out that the, the million plan aims within a year to reduce car travel by one million trips per day out of the 12 million trips now. So they're going to inaugurate 120 kilometers public transport and carpool lanes, meaning cars with three or more passengers by converting assisting lanes. It's a problem that didn't exist when I came to Israel more than 50 years ago, but it's a problem that's got to be solved. Take care of yourself till next time. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.
If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.